All right, guys, what's going on? Uh, I am back from a little bit of a brutally hot during this time of the year bear and deer hunt up in the mountains that was unsuccessful in the animal searching department, but was a great time to get out and hike around with a buddy of mine. Uh, but that is not going to stop me from getting out this episode to you guys today. I wanted to invite my friend Trevor Thompson, who's a former Navy SEAL, professional base jumper, skydiver big game hunter guide he started making his own bows recently so we can call him a boyer i mean he's got all kinds of titles and all kinds of things he's done and as a bit of a renaissance man in that regard and actually i get to the the bottom of why that is in our conversation it has to do with how he and his family grew up which is really cool but i was really excited to get him on the podcast today and talk to him about all of these experiences all these crazy things and, and cool things that he's done in his life and really what kind of makes him tick and how you can be someone who wants to join the Navy SEALs and then do thousands of jumps out of airplanes and then take up all of these skills and all of these other things and always pushing to get better in these in in all of these different disciplines and then still training super hard uh, throughout the year to be ready for all of these things. It was a it was a really fun conversation. We touched a lot of different stuff. We talked about his time in the SEALs and his training to go through uh, buds and everything that that required of him. I talked a lot about hunting and his experience uh, this last, uh, I guess it was about a month ago now, uh, over in east in Western Oregon on an elk hunt, and really, really important story for you guys to hear there. Uh, but we, we touched a lot of corners, and it was a really fun conversation with Trevor. He's an awesome follow on Instagram if you guys are, you know, if you're on Instagram, please go follow Trevor. He works with uh, ProTech now, which we've had um, Nick Norris, who's the, one of the founders and CEO of, of ProTech on. Great supplements. Go check those guys out. I'll put the link for, for them in the notes also. And uh, that that's just my intro for, for my conversation with Trevor. I don't want to get too much into it because there's a lot of really good nuggets in this conversation that I think you guys are really going to enjoy and and take some stuff away from. Uh, before we get into the episode, I just wanted to make sure you guys know to go and subscribe and follow or whatever the button is on whatever platform on either of the podcast platforms, Spotify or Apple Pods or where the main things are leave a review that really does help the show be seen in the search function or show up in the search function or show up on people's, you know, you might like this type of timeline on those pages uh, helps the show grow. And then also we're up on YouTube now. So go subscribe to the YouTube channel. There's multiple videos being put out a week of short clips from the show, uh, longer ones than I can post on Instagram, like two to five minutes that are some really good stories from podcasts. Uh, I do a couple of those a week, so we're more active over there now. And uh, so so please go subscribe. All of those things really do help the show grow. And I really appreciate everybody who's done that so far. Final thing uh, I wanted to give a shout out to, uh, to two companies that are going to be working with us here on the show a lot more in the future. Uh, the first being Steady Grounds Coffee. Uh, this is run by my buddy George and his wife, CT, and they are small batch. They're roasted to made to order every time. It's unreal coffee. It's so good. And we actually have a little bit of a fun project that we're working on uh, date to be announced but it's it's gonna be really cool and I'm really excited about it so go check out steady grounds coffee they are awesome and you can get some really good you know awesome family-owned small batch roasted delicious coffee and uh, support some awesome people who are doing it and then the second is my buddy drew 
over at Selway Archery. He is, uh, he makes, we, we had him on the podcast a couple of months ago, actually, and, and he's decided to start working with us. And then also over at Peace, Love and Meat also, uh, they make awesome quivers, uh, you know, on bow, slide on or strap on quivers for recurves and long bows, traditional archery. And he sent me one out that he had, that we, that he made for me. That's got the Nomad logo on it. That's laser engraved into the rawhide and took it up on the hunt with me last weekend. They're just such high quality stuff. And Drew's an awesome guy been a family operated business for decades and it's just a, a, a I want to be a part of things that are supporting people I like that are helping you know mutually we're getting stuff where we can help each other and that's really what I want to do with these partnerships and I'm really excited to announce a couple of these so uh, go check out Drew at Selway Archery if you're in the traditional bow hunting world and you need a quiver for your bow go check out steady grounds and and that'll do it so without further ado let's get into my conversation with trevor thompson All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Nomad Strength Show. Uh, got a special guest today. I'm joined by Trevor Thompson with Protect Now. Uh, yeah. But you've done a million and a half things in your life. And so I'm sure we'll get to touch as many corners of that as we can in the hour. But uh, I'm glad to have you on, man, today. Thank you for making time. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that worked out. You asked, what, just a couple days ago, so yeah. Rarely does it happen that quickly <laughs> when I go to schedule I stuff. Know. I was a little shocked. <laughs> worked for me, man. Uh, well, we actually um, have a lot of crossing paths of, of friend groups and stuff like that, and we're fellow Winter Strongers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's cool that that's kind of like a lot of the background that we have is sharing mutual friends and stuff like that. And I, it's cool in that crowd specifically, like a lot of the people that come to winter strong and stuff like that, how quickly those relationships become more than just like, Oh, I met this dude at this event one time, you know? And I think that's something that that particular events a little unique in where a lot of the people that you meet down there, cause I think it's still, you know, still relatively small for an event of that caliber really. But the yes. whole thing is like, you walk away from there like, dude, I actually met people that I would consider good friends now just from like hanging out for three days in the woods, you know, and I guess that's, you oh, know, yeah. in most outdoor scenarios, I guess that's probably kind of the point. Like, that's how you end up building like real strong relationships. And so it's kind of cool in that event. Like, have you kind of experienced that the last couple of times of being down there? Was last year your first year? Or did you go the year before? No, as well? I went two years before that. So, okay. So you've gone one year. Yeah. I last this yeah. year, this recent one was my second. So, yeah. I, so I missed the one before, um, I had some other stuff going on. Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty, pretty fun environment, but I wanted to get into a lot of different stuff with you because <laughs> I went to, was like looking through your Instagram thing and you were, you know, former Navy SEAL, you were R. I guess, uh, how would you consider professional skydiving? Because pro skydiving, I would consider you pro. Like you just do it crazily and you got the squirrel suits and all that kind of stuff. So really what I'm getting at is it's like kind of this adventure junkie mindset, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. has that always been the case with you? Because I imagine like if you're going to go down the path of doing Navy SEAL stuff and this, it's 
not something you pick up along the way. You're probably born a little bit like this, right? <laughs> uh, not necessarily. Um, my parents, grandparents always encouraged us to uh, try different, a bunch of different things. And we were more, <laughs> more akin to the like Victorian style. Hey, you're going to learn to play an instrument. You're going to take a different language. You're mm-hmm. going to do art. Um, everybody... Both my brothers and I, uh, we all played sports. So yep. uh, my youngest brother ended up going to college to play soccer, um, and now he has a PhD. Um, and then the wow. middle one played relatively high-level basketball, didn't end up playing in school because he went to a music school in Texas. Hmm. Um, and then I was a state-level track and field guy and ended up going to an art school in Chicago. <laughs> so, <laughs> so just renaissance family of different different. avenues that's pretty cool man like that's Mm -hmm. that seems to be unique anymore yeah i i I think it's relatively unique um i wish it wasn't but i'm Mm -hmm. glad that we are all able to experience that sort of lifestyle and our parents really encouraging us to to do that sort of thing because um, regardless of where we ended up in life everybody is able to speak well and Mm -hmm. talk about their thoughts and um they're also all physically capable and mm. creative. So we're able to just do whatever the fuck we want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, and I'm assuming that your parents were that way as well. Yeah. Um, my dad's an attorney, but he's okay. also a, bron- a bronze sculptor and a painter. Um, and he was a, a surfer all through high school, played football, baseball at a very high level. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was a teacher and an artist and then uh, was a swimmer at Arizona. Very cool. So what was it for you that led you more down the, I guess if, if you're talking about everybody did something physical mm-hmm. as well, what was it about military stuff that was appealing to you in a lot of that regard? Um, so my family has had somebody serve in every conflict all the way back past through the French and Indian War, um, wow. we yeah, both sides of the Civil War, World War One, the Spanish American War, kind of everything. Um, mm-hmm. My dad's brother was in Vietnam. My dad was too young, so an idea of service was always there. Uh, so I went to college in 2006. Mm-hmm. After about two months, I'm like, this is just not the ticket for me. <laughs> I do yeah. not like this. <laughs> um, yeah. Had the war not been going on, I probably would have dropped out anyways and gone to more of like a, in Italy, they have these like communes of artists where okay. they, they've been doing these old school style teaching methods where you're basically being mentored into how to, you know, be a traditional artist. Okay. Um, I, I probably would have left and gone and done one of those, but the war was going on and I was still training, you know, running and going to the mm-hmm. gym a little bit. And I'm like, man, you know, I I really need to do something. Like, I need to give back in some way. The family's had such a good opportunity. Like, I had that incredibly lucky middle-class upbringing. Like, nothing nothing was to be wanted for. We didn't get everything we wanted, but I I didn't need for anything in my life. So why not give back a little bit? And I'm like, well, I'm not an idiot, and I'm physically capable. So what's the hardest thing I can do that's going to be the thing that, can be really beneficial to me Mm. and the country. Right. So I had read, um, books on the Ricondo guys, the McAfee Mm -hmm. Sog guys, the LERPs, uh, which are 
part of the 101st. Um, and I had never really read anything about the SEAL teams, but for whatever fucking reason, I'm like, that's the thing I want to do. <laughs> and that was kind of that was before all the books. I think Latrell's book came out maybe the end of that year or okay. the next year. So it's kind uh, of before seven. Seals became the the cool guys in a lot of, like the cool cool guys in the sense that they became the ones that were popular. Like and everybody had stories about them, and they kind of became the celebrity military guys. It yeah, seems almost very much so. So yeah, um, th- there was light coverage of them uh mm-hmm. the delta guys green mm-hmm. berets you know, everybody kind of had the same sort of thing uh, going on notoriety wise sure um and so I, I picked that and i went down to a recruiter maybe in november of 06 so i'd mm-hmm. been in school for maybe a month and a half <laughs> <laughs> called my parents <laughs> yeah called my parents and i'm like hey fyi um, i put in a leave of absence and i'm going to join the navy like no discussion. That was just I had <laughs> made the decision already, because uh, I was eighteen, and I'm like, right. I can do whatever the fuck I want. I could do it now. <laughs> I could. Yeah. I could do this thing. And so my my parents were like, "All right, cool. Well, here's the deal. Um, we know you're putting in the leave, and that you're going to be on the delayed entry program. So because you know you need to train. Mm-hmm. Um, so please finish the year out. That way, at mm-hmm. least." With being on a leave of absence, um, at least you've finished the, the year of school True. and you can come back to those credits. Uh, so I did that. I finished out the year and was training my ass off during the entire time, uh, doing a ton of running, mm-hmm. mostly calisthenics. Like I would say that what I was doing was the same shit guys had been doing from 2001 to okay. the 60s. Yeah. Um, the, ver- the very standard like run a shit ton, do a mm-hmm. lot of stairs, swim as much as you can, do all the push-ups, sit-ups, flutter kicks, pull-ups that are possible in a mm-hmm. in a format that you're not going to fuck yourself up. So, sure. That's just that's what I was focused on. Like I was doing school and then just doing that. From a preparation perspective with the training, how much of it? I'm curious with, you know, several guys that I know that have been through buds and and that whole program. There's kind of this mythology around buds and then specifically around hell week right how much of the training and everything around that was for that and then how much of it was like i actually did okay here in the things outside of this outside of the buds week or outside of hell week specifically is like this was actually what i was training for this was this is much harder because i think everybody's kind of like when they see it they're like oh i have to train every every single day for this one week and it's like well maybe but there's a lot of other stuff that goes into this too. Yeah. Um, I mean, being as young as I was, I was 18, right? So right. I was just kind of, I went off of, and I'm really glad I did. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Stu Smith's books. So Stu. Sounds familiar. Was, I don't know if I can recall a, him right here. He's a Naval Acad grad. Um, okay. And he's put, he's probably helped put more people through buds than mm. anybody else alive. Okay. Um, purely because he formatted his training around what the program actually is, which is a shit ton of running, yeah, a little bit of swimming, and an absolutely astronomical amount of calisthenics. Okay. So that's what he prepares you for. You know, you end up doing hundreds of pull-ups, hundreds of push-ups, hundreds mm-hmm. of sit-ups every single training session, and then two to five miles of running every single day. Gotcha. And then they're swimming two to three times a week. So his preparatory work is something that 
engage my brain to understand that okay this is like a this is a sum of the parts type of training thing not right. uh, just hell week or just first phase or just second phase you need to prepare to get your ass handed to you for six months straight sure not not two weeks not three days not a month which i'm glad that i did that because i i wouldn't have known that going into it i probably would have done the standard like oh yeah what's hell week like and what's this and just kind of mm-hmm. guessed yeah might have been okay might not but i sure didn't get hurt which i would imagine that's probably where a lot of guys end up dropping out is from the physical injuries is is it yeah. the combination the, of that a little bit i i think i think there's a fair number of guys that drop out uh due to physical injuries but the reality being um that is often just a a way for them to have an excuse to quit everybody mm. has some nagging sure. something um I nobody, nobody leaves feeling good. <laughs> no, I like I, I sublux both shoulders yeah. um, individually at, at different times. So that's like a, a, a near dislocation. If people don't know um, during training and that didn't set me back, I was just in pain. Right. So, and that's not me trying to tough guy it. Like I'm just saying that that's everybody has something that happens. Like everybody totally. twists an angle or, you know, hyperextends a knee or twists their back. If you want to be there, you're going to fucking be there. Yeah. Uh, the most most people that leave the program quit. Yeah. Say right. say there's a hundred percent of people that all the people that quit, like ninety percent of them are quitters, and the other mm-hmm. ten might get pushed out due to failing evolutions or actual injuries. Like there are guys that break their back, break ribs, break their knee. Mm-hmm. Those are life changing injuries that you're going to get bumped out of the navy for. Gotcha. That makes yeah. sense. And when you when you get through all of it, and now you're actually in, was that experience relative to what you thought it might be? Was it what you expected? Was it different? I mean, where were you going actually through that that place? Um, you mean like during buds or after? After, like once all of it's completed, oh, okay, and you're yeah. through, so, like actually completing everything. Now you're in, and it's like, was that what you thought it was going to be, or different? It was. Um, exceptionally different and that was mostly because i think now looking back on it i had no cultural reference oh okay um i wasn't part of that kind of culture i wasn't like i was a track and field athlete right so um even guys that were wrestlers or water polo players had a closer kinship to the culture than i did uh track and field is a team sport but ultimately Mm -hmm. it's individual you're by yourself you're by yourself. <laughs> yeah. um, so the bulk of the guys that are in the SEAL teams were wrestlers or football, some type of football, baseball, water polo, that like yeah. group team dynamic. Um, there are odds and ends of guys that were just track and field or some other sport. It does sure. happen, um, but just not as common. So I didn't even have a, a touch to the culture, which is fine because you're brand new along with everybody else. It's brand new. So right. you're just as much as a idiot as they are. And <laughs> right. you get, in, you get introduced to the program and understanding what kind of culture is there and mm-hmm. living it. And, uh, was it a surprise? Yeah, but I'm, it was a good surprise. Uh, those guys work their asses off. And you're 19, 18, 19 post yeah, that, yeah, 19, right? So yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the, from from what I understand about it, I mean, guys that are still active seals that are kind of lifer guys are in their 
like 40s. I mean, guys that have been doing it at that point, like as long as you've been alive, which that's got to be kind of a crazy dynamic to work with those guys at that level too, right? Yeah. And and when I joined, so I joined in 2007, um, there were still guys in the SEAL teams that had direct firsthand knowledge from guys that had been in Vietnam. Now, nobody that was in Vietnam had been, was still in the SEAL teams, but there were guys that had been trained by guys from Vietnam. Now that's not the that's case wild. anymore. Yeah. Now we're another generation past, but it was freaking wild that like, okay, I so those guys during... would be like kind of like Gulf War guys now, yeah. right? Or like early nineties oh, yeah. guys. Yeah. Wow. And that's and when cool. I joined, uh, there were guys at Delta that had been in Mogadishu. There were guys in the SEAL teams that had been in Mogadishu. Like it was some it was some interesting history that was still going on. How do you relate to those guys when you're on a team with them? Because I'm thinking like team aspect wise, right? You don't. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like you're, you you're also my have teammate, a tribe, but you're it. also like you're a teammate, but you could also like be my dad's age kind of a thing, you know, which is kind of crazy uh, to think about. And, and some of them were, um, which is wild, you know. Yeah. Uh, but everybody has a tribe. And mm. then they expect you to earn it every day. So mm. no matter what you do, the bottom of the barrel of the reality is you mm. have a fucking bird that you have to show that you earn. And if you don't deserve it, we'll take it away from you. Mm. Which is great. Uh, it, it, it can sound a little crazy, but here's the deal is that's a job that has fatal consequences for failure. So, oh, well, you can't do it. That's too bad. Yeah and, really it's not, it, yeah, and it's not something where there's going to be any hesitation about it either because of the stakes of yeah. what it is that you're doing. Yeah. That's crazy. So w- with SEALs, I know it's largely, you know, water-based stuff, but do you guys jump at all in SEAL teams? Is that... Yes. So that's actually the the middle letter there is Sea, Air, yeah. Land. So SEAL stands for Sea, Air, Makes and Land. Um, and everybody... is. From when I went through BUDS till now, still, um, it is now part of the pipeline of training that you go to static line and then you go to free fall. So everybody's free mm. fall qualified. Everybody is a skydiver that is in the SEAL teams. Um, when I joined, there were still a couple guys that hadn't gone through free fall. Uh, they were just hanger-ons or dudes that it wasn't important because the war had been cranking for five years at that point. So right. with free fall being kind of an elective course, now they wanted you to go. It just wasn't that important. That's just gotcha. not something super important. So they just weren't sending guys in mass uh, like they would say late nineties or now when there's kind of nothing really going on for those dudes. Was that something that was, so when you did it, then you're like, I can get into this. Cause obviously you still jump and do these kind of things. So that must've been something that yeah. you're like, this is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And actually oddly enough, um, I had a major accident the very last jump of free fall school um, where I had a reserve deployment from the automatic activation device on my back because my mane tangled around me on a night jump. Uh, So I almost died the last jump in training. Holy cow. And believe me, I was not happy about it. I was like, I went through all that shit and now I'm going to die. This is fucking ridiculous. Um, So years later being on the jump team, I had guys that I went through training with and they're like, you're on the jump team. You almost died, dude. How did you get over that? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, but, well, talk me through that. Talk me through that, though, because like, how how much time do you have in that moment to be pissed off? Like, are you actually like 
mad uh, in six, that moment or is it just six, like i gotta figure this four, out 45 to 60 seconds oof oh you're pissed but you're trying to figure shit out at the same right. time you know you can't lock up yeah totally so i mean landing wise was it still pretty rough i mean how did the I whole experience kind of go? crashed um yeah. so i exited the aircraft uh, obviously i'm brand new at skydiving it's like my 24th jump the the hill that we climb to learn how to jump in the SEAL teams mm-hmm. is ridiculous. Um, it would be like taking somebody into a fitness class and handing them a kettlebell and then saying, hey, FYI, so on Saturday you're going to be competing at nationals. <laughs> okay. So. Yeah. It's a lot going on. So I exited the aircraft. It's at night. We're wearing a ruck, which weighs 45 to 60 pounds. I don't quite remember what it was. It's just determined based on mm-hmm. your body weight. So everybody okay. has a slightly different weight to their ruck. Um, I had a weapon on my left side, an oxygen tank on my right, I think. Um, gloves, goggles, helmet, the whole nine yards. Exit, turn on heading, reach, deploy. We have a ripcord mm-hmm. on those parachutes. So a ripcord here, which pulls pins. So your main now is open. It came out and bounced off my foot. The uh, pilot chute bounced off my foot, wrapped around my hand. So now my hand is anchored in the air. And I can't reach down to get to my cutaway, uh, which you need to cut away the main in order Mm -hmm. to not have it tangle with your reserve. So I wrestled with that for however long I wrestled with, thinking this is how I'm going to die with lines and all sorts of bullshit floating around. And I'm like, this is fucked. Like, I'm going to die this way. This is ridiculous. I cannot believe I went through all that shit just to have this happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, knowing that if I don't cut away, the reserve's going to deploy into this spaghetti and right. kill me. Well, it deployed anyways because it, I think it's 2,500 feet for those military rigs. Um, that automatic activation device will open right. up that reserve on its own. It cuts a loop and then it's forced open. So that came open and it deployed. While you're still Fucking, tangled up with that arm? Yep. Total miracle. The thing went open clean over my head. Wow. And it was just wrapped up in the middle by all the lines for the main. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay. I guess I'm not going to die today. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. Looked man. around for where I needed to land. The drop zone was behind me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Granted, it's at night. So it's the only thing lit up. I grabbed a riser, turned it a little bit. And as I kind of got t- facing the drop zone... Um, I hit a hill that I had drifted over oh, okay. and then bounce, bounce down the hill. I'm like, Oh my God, that that's fucking scary. <laughs> Come to a seated position on the ground. I'm sort of facing uh, the side of a road. I ended up on an embankment of a road, mm-hmm. pulled the reserve into my feet and I almost got hit by a car. Oh my goodness. I know. Like so, one thing after another, dude, <laughs> pretty damn lucky. Um, <laughs> Seriously. That's incredible. And the worst injuries I had were I had rope burn on my nose. Uh, I was a little banged up. And then um, I had like twisted my ankle. So having your I, arm I was, all tangled up didn't mess anything in that arm at all? No, I was supremely wow. lucky. Like the whole That's thing amazing, was just outrageously man. lucky. The fact that I didn't get killed or break my back or mm-hmm. any number of things that could have happened. Um, yeah, but it wow. didn't deter me from skydiving because not a month later I was jumping on my I own. I was just going to ask how long be- yeah. between that and the next one was it? Not more than a month. Was that as soon as you could have gone? Or what did you need like a little bit of time to kind of recompose before you wanted to go back up again? No, I could have gone. the. I, I could have easily gone the next day. Uh, okay. But they, they didn't want me to. Yeah. They're like, no, you're hurt. We want you to have some deep, some decompression. 
Sure. Um, which now on the back end, thinking about it, I'm like, they really should have forced me to go right away to make sure that I wasn't going to quit or do something weird. Uh, it, it was just sort of happenstance that that was also the graduation jump that was not graded. So the fact that it happened didn't matter. Gotcha. Very, it's just very weird. The, yeah, if, if they were to let you stew with it for a couple of weeks, that a lot of people probably have been like, no, that was it. I'm done with that. I, I think, I think most people, you know, like yeah. say you take somebody out for their driver's education test and the last driving they're going to do, they go out in the freeway and they have a rollover where they wreck the car. That's yeah. going to cause some trauma yeah. for most people. Some yeah. people have a screw loose and they're like, Hey, that was fun. It was, uh, so how many jumps have you done? Do you even know the number, how many you've done now at this point? Um, it's somewhere around 6,500 skydives and like 850 something base jumps. Wow. That's amazing. I have one of my, uh, one of my best friend's dad was, uh, back in the late eighties, early nineties was a member of 82nd. And he okay. always tells this, he always tells this story about, uh, his 13th jump when they were in school was on friday the 13th and he was supposed to be the 13th dude going out of the plane and so yeah and he uh and he was married at the time and my friend wasn't born yet but his older brother was and so his his mom and is is telling him like do not jump today i'm telling you like find a way to (laughs) to redo it or whatever and he's like uh it was i can't remember if he ended up doing it that day or not but he's like it was he talks about it now and he goes, it was one of the only times I've ever felt like superstitious about something like that when all those things line up and then you have to jump out of a plane. And I'm like, that would probably get me too, man. Even though I'm oh, yeah. like, like, what do you mean? I'm also the 13th one to go. That's, can we not do that, please? <laughs> like, like, uh, can I go in front of this dude? Yeah. Anything. We'll make somebody else 13th. Like, <laughs> yeah. too funny, man. So after that, you know, post post-military stuff you keep jumping but you're also doing a lot i mean was the hunting part something that you had done growing up no. or so that came later on as well kind of you're, it did. you're like um, me adult onset adult yeah, onset I, hunter I, I did some spearfishing i did quite a bit of spearfishing in hawaii um the team i went to was out in hawaii so sdv team one and okay. we do a shit ton of diving so yeah. i got really really comfortable in the water i had like 13, 1400 hours dive time, um, somewhere in there. And so I'm very comfortable in the water and I did a lot of spearfishing out there. So I had killed a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I went on a pheasant hunting trip with a buddy of mine in Colorado at a family friend's place. It was like planted birds. Mm -hmm. So that was my first real exposure to, um, on land hunting, which would be, you know, upland game. Uh, sure. It was a lot of fun. It was pheasant and chucker, and it was easy. Uh, you know, we knew how to handle shotguns and rifles, and so it was simple. Um, so, after being in the the SEAL teams for nine years and deploying and stuff for five of that, um, I just didn't have an interest in rifle hunting. And part of that was I didn't get exposed to the culture as a kid. So I, mm. I had no, I had no understanding. I didn't get it. In my head, it was like that's a rednecky thing or a rich people Got thing. I, I just, I just didn't have a, a frame of reference. Yeah. Um, so I had seen, um, Andy Stumpf who he and I, uh, were, were buddies then. And he had started archery hunting, uh, through John Dudley. Mm-hmm. And 
I was like, ah, that maybe that would be an interesting way. Like I could do that maybe. Um, and eventually I poked him enough where Andy was like, okay, cool. And he got me introduced to Dudley. Dudley, uh, set me up with an extra bow that was around had, Mm -hmm. Uh, run me through some lessons on how to shoot. Um, I was able to get his phone number and send images back and forth and some videos. So he coached me for about a month or so mm-hmm. um, in preparation for a black bear hunt in Canada. And man, I shot the shit out of that bow. Like it was like <laughs> hundreds of arrows a day to the point where I was yeah. getting like ten- tendonitis. It was like not good. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, man, I'm getting tendonitis. And John was like, well, how many arrows are you shooting a day? I'm like, I don't know, 150, 200? He goes, bro, it's a 70-pound bow. Calm the fuck down. Back off, man. Back off, dumbass. <laughs> well, I didn't know. He's like, relax. So uh, that really did it for me. And mm-hmm. I, I was from shooting that first bear, which is like that I was going to ask, is that the one that's up on the wall behind you? Yeah, it's yep. that one. Um from shooting that that first bear, I just knew like this is it. This is what I want to do for mm-hmm. all my meat. This is what I want to do for my hunting hobby. This is how I want to do it. And that has been an incredible experience for me and a, a lifestyle shift because it's given me a, a focus and kind of a a semblance of that type of purpose that I had something similar in the seal teams and now i don't have to participate in factory farming and i get to do this really cool thing where i chase all these big animals what do you think it was that did that for you like in the like in in your in your head in your mind or like how you felt about it what do you think it was it was like this is it it's the sum of the parts right so to me it's very similar to base jumping where to be able to do the action correctly Mm. and ethically speaking of hunting you have to put a lot of practice in. You have to have all the right skills. You have to have the right mindset. You have to have the right physical aptitude. Now, mm-hmm. you can leave some of that stuff out and you can perform the function, but you're not going to be able to either enjoy it or do it as well as you could possibly do it, especially somebody that's in their 30s. Like Anybody in their 30s, barring some physical handicap, should be able to solo backpack hunt for a week for deer. And that's me saying that now, uh, looking right. back, but sort of feeling that that was what the reality was on the front end of this is almost certainly why after I was able to shoot the first bear, I'm like, oh, this is it. Like, this is, this is really, really fulfilling because I took it all home and I ate it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's an incredible experience to be part of that whole circle and then share the meat, share the stories. I mean, I'm still talking about it. It's been yeah. six, almost seven years. That first, that hunt, that bear hunt, how did that hunting experience, everything leading up to the shot, right? You're getting it. And you said Canada, right? So you're like, yeah, that's, that's a whole literally other world up there. Yeah. Terrain wise and <clears throat> wilderness wise. How was that experience having that been your, your first go at it? I mean, you're, and, and you, like you said, you jumped right into bow hunting. Like you oh, yeah. didn't, you didn't do any of this. So, I mean, like you're already doing this a little differently than a lot of people that start right away anyways, mm-hmm. you know? And so that whole first hunt, like how were you going through that process? How was that experience for you? You know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Um, 
I'm glad that it was trial by fire. And were you guided I'm, on that hunt at all? Yeah. And in okay. Canada, unless you're a resident, you have to be guided. Have to be. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a legal requisite, um, for any non-resident. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that's just how it works. So, mm-hmm. oh, well, um, and the guides were wonderful. They were, that's a place that Dudley has gone many times. It's mm-hmm. Chil- what is it? Chilkootin river outfitters. Um, and those guys are great. Super helpful, really nice, knowledgeable. They were, um, they knew the area and they knew that I was new. They knew that that was my first hunt. So they were very hands-on with, yeah, do this and answering all my questions. Sure. Um, they also knew that I wasn't going to like seize up under pressure or, you know, lose my shit. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that it was done in that fashion because you can go from, archery hunting a black bear on a spot and stock and pretty much hunt whatever you want without freaking out. How far was the shot? Like how did the actual shot process go? Um, I think it was like 22 yards. Nice. I was pretty much on top of it. Yeah. And then you made the move. I don't know how recently it was, but to traditional style archery and actually making your own bows as well and building your own bows out. What was the, what was the catalyst for that transition? So the catalyst for that was I have a friend that now lives in Newport, Oregon, which mm-hmm. is on the coast. At the time, he lived in Missoula, Montana, mm-hmm. three and a half years ago. Jeff and I have been friends a long time. Um, I call him the most interesting man in the world. He's like bow hunts with a long bow. He's a, a good pistol rifle shooter. He's a wingsuit base jumper, a world champion hand glider, a falconer, has sailed across the Atlantic. <laughs> He's an interesting guy. Um, one of the best mountaineers in the world uh, for a couple of years. So he's an interesting awesome. dude. Yeah, and he and I have been friends for a long time. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'd love to come hunt um, elk up there with you. And he's like, yeah, that'd be great. You just have to hunt with a trad bow. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I went and got myself a Hoyt Satori and started practicing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I really like this. This is really cool. And eventually got South Cox to build me a stalker. Mm. So I just was practicing the living shit out of it and took that to Montana. Uh, didn't shoot anything, but I liked the process. I liked how hard it was. I liked how close we had to get to the animals. You know, your entire world starts to shrink. Mm-hmm. And I found out I was sort of good at it. Um, at the shooting, at the process, at, sure. at understanding what's going on and at seeing things up close and not being too loud, not being too fidgety. You can always be quieter though. You can always mm-hmm. be slower. So I went from there to then slowly getting more and more simple. Um, ended up buying a Centaur one piece longbow and that was on uh, the recommendation of the guys at Selway Archery. Mm. And yeah. uh, they were like, yeah, 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 you know, centaurs are really good. I'm like, okay, cool. So I got one of those. I love it. This thing is a great shooting bow. And then a couple of years ago, I went to take a, a course with Corey Hawk mm-hmm. and built one of those bows and did that. And after I shot that, I'm like, this is sick. Like, <laughs> this is a thing that is just like shit, barring the string. Yeah. Um, that is just like, 10,000 years ago. Like, holy crap. This yeah. is rad. And then uh, earlier this summer, I, I 
was talking to Corey. I'm like, you know, I'd, I'd really love to build one of those like Kiowa style or plane style bows mm-hmm. that he builds. The, the rawhide backed um, recurve, de- uh, decurve Osage bows. He goes, oh, well, that's kind of a complicated process. And mm-hmm. now I know it is a complicated process. Um, so you'd have to come and we, we'll just one-on-one it. Well, it didn't work out. And being a little bit like look before I leap type of guy, I was like, fuck it. I'll just order some staves and try it at home. Like what's the worst <laughs> that's going to happen? Do it myself. Do it live. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> so I did it live and uh, I ended up with a, a Pacific U longbow. Okay. That um, shoots like 65, 66 pounds. It's shooting like 168 feet a second with like 650 green arrows. So it's a hammer. Jeez, um, that's like getting by a truck, man. <laughs> I know. And Carson at uh, at Sherwood Shafts, he's the one who hooked me up with the stave. And it was one of his personals. And he's like, hey, don't fuck this thing up. Please. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> sure. It's only my first time trying this. Well, <laughs> I'm just alone in my slower. garage. Not a big deal. <laughs> right. So um, it actually went great. I just, I took my time. Um, and I have to like throw a thank you to Corey who's answering mm-hmm. questions while I was doing it and Clay Hayes, um, yeah. who I was talking to during the process and he, I ordered his book and I literally was like texting Clay, texting Corey and mm-hmm. asking questions back and forth. Um, everybody was super helpful. It's incredible how nice and helpful the people in the traditional and self bow world are. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because there's like a hundred of them. And yeah, not not, not <laughs> yeah. five thousand. I don't know what the right. case is, but it seems yeah. like everybody's like really nice. So, well, I've talked about this before when I when I started shooting uh, when I started shooting my recurve about about a year ago actually was when I got it, and that's like the the first thing because after Brandon had got me like finally after months had he's like dude just freaking just do get it this one and I'm like all right I did it got all set up. That's like one of the first things I noticed, like all these guys, like with Corey and Drew from Selway and like all these, all these guys are like super pumped that another person wants to do it. You know, it's not like the, (laughs) we have a convert, (laughs) right? Where they could very easily be the, the type of group that would be like wanting to keep it exclusive. Yeah. You know, like that could very easily have been kind of the the mood of everybody in that community but it's the exact opposite like when somebody finally like gets to the point where they want to pick one up they're like yes we have another like bring him in let's teach him everything and everybody's super helpful and like wants to impart wisdom and give advice and one of the things that brand i've talked about is like the dudes that we love learning from and looking at or or hearing about the stories of are guys that have next to zero or super small any internet presence at all Mm -hmm. but they're dudes that have shot the same one recurve bow for 42 something years and they've killed 200 something animals with it and there's one guy that we i can't remember his name now i just heard brandon tell me about him like a week or so ago has spot and stalked two mountain lions in his life and I'm like, I don't know if there's a more gangster thing in the world than to say you snuck up on a mountain lion and killed it with a bow. Like, that's about as cool as it gets. Yeah, and the, the deeper you get into it, the more of those guys you run into. Um, yeah. Like, there's a guy in Oregon that I've been talking to, and he's similar. I mean, he's shot mm-hmm. a bunch of bulls, and he's shot a bunch of bulls with a recurve. 
and yeah nobody knows who the fuck he is and and he's perfectly <laughs> happy with that like doesn't give a doesn't give a shit <laughs> yeah so when you started making them uh and you took one you took your most recent one on elk hunt recently it's right the, it's the only bow i've been hunting with i have i literally brought nothing but two self bows to oregon nice i was like if i'm committed i'm fucking committed yeah so i brought two you bows that i made that's awesome. Not giving like, yourself any gonna, option. Nope. Nope. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't even going to bring the centaur. Like, I'm like, I'm not even bringing that one. Yep. How did the I hunt... know that one shoots. Yeah. And with, uh, and that elk hunt, you were Oregon? Mm-hmm. Western Oregon. Yeah. That is like, that coastal area where the elk, like the, because it's Roosevelt elk over in that mm-hmm. part of the state, right? Which is hilarious because the, uh, the episode I actually just posted today with James Nash uh, he has he has this belief. He's an outfitter in Oregon. He has this belief that Roosevelt aren't real, and I'm like, oh, like he's never he, seen he, one. No, like the species of them aren't actually separate from what Rocky Mountain elk are because of how much they get moved from the Rockies over to Western Oregon. And like he says, the dividing line of when they call them what is I five. And he's like, if they're on the western side of I-5, they're Rosies. If they're on the eastern side, they're Rockies. And he's like, if you can show me some genetic differences, I'll believe it. But he's like, I don't know. I'm a kind of conspiracy theorist on this. <laughs> I mean, they do the same thing with blacktail and mule deer in mm-hmm. California. So, like, yeah. Okay, James. I think you're just supposed to be <laughs> angry about something. That was pretty funny. But those ones over there, like, just the terrain that they live in and the coastal parts where it's just wet all the time and everything's super, super close together really dense. I always get that feeling even just driving through that part of the state like when you look out the like you can't even see anything 20 yards off the road because of how close and like you said dense everything is like what's it like yeah. hunting in that environment it's, it's um it's like wearing a velcro suit and trying to move through a briar bush <laughs> that's a great analogy everything sticks to you all the time and you make nothing but noise, but there's an upside to that because the elk make noise, right? You can make noise. Yeah. And you're not really, yeah, you're not spot and stocking in that stuff. Uh, Really? Are you? you? Do you even have Um, room to do that? It just depends on if you see them in a cut or a road or like you can spot and stock ish, but you're going to be doing some calling. You're going to be doing some listening and some sneaking around. Um, and we got super lucky. So we went to an area that was suggested by uh, Riley Kirkpatrick from Kirkpatrick Forge. Um, he's an incredibly good blacksmith and horseshoer or farrier. And he's been hunting his whole life. And he's a houndsman. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to go to this area. And it's really cool. It's super thick. We were there last year. But, like, it's rad. There's There are definitely mm-hmm. elk in there. I'm like, okay, cool. So we get out there. And day one at lunch, we had already run into, like, 30 cow and had seen two bulls. I'm like, well, this is great. That's better than the 12 days previous hunting in Utah because yeah. I've seen two cows in 12 <laughs> days. I'm like, well, this is yeah. way better. Already better. And they're like, and they're like, man, who would have thought coming to the Oregon coast you'd see more elk than in Utah? I'm like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> but that's the game you play with public yeah. land. So we were out there and um, around lunch, Austin, who was his buddy, it was just the three of us hunting, was like, I'm going to throw a call out. I'm like, yeah, fuck it. Like sometimes bulls will do stuff from their bed in the middle of the day he throws a, a bugle out and we get two in response immediately wow We're like no shit he throws another one just to make sure like oh, i'll see if it's a hunter like nope that's a bull 
mm-hmm. and we started moving towards him and we were screwing with this bull for like an hour and we he was there like it was for sure a bull because you know if you've been hunting elk or around people that hunted elk long enough you can hear the difference in sound as well yeah. as direction usually yeah. hunters point their tubes at the direction stuff's coming from unless they're really clever well, this was obviously a bull because he was like pointing his head different directions and the, yeah, the calls like were a little sweep. different. Yeah, he was moving his head around. We could mm-hmm. tell that he was moving his head because it sounded like he was moving away and then close and then away. Mm-hmm. And cl- like, oh, that's definitely just a bull. Well, we ended up getting down into this creek bottom, moving through that Valkyrie bullshit. And we had two hunters walk up on us. And it was two guys from like the Carolinas that were out there. Well, they were trying to sneak in on a bull that they thought lived down there, which was probably the one we were screwing with mm-hmm. like a white tail. They're like, Oh yeah, we're going to get in on him. I'm like, that's just not how you elk hunt, but okay. <laughs> Good luck dog. <laughs> and so we thought we were screwed. We're like, ah mm-hmm. man, like these guys showed up and we all talked about it. And I'm like, you know, animals are clever, but they're not stupid. Mm-hmm. That bull might've thought that those two dudes were the only people that came through here. And that that other bull that he was yelling with is still here. I'm like, mm. let's go up the other side of this thing. Let's make a little bit of noise and then throw a throw a, a hard, angry bugle out. Like, where the fuck are you? Yeah. We, we did it, and that thing responded in 20 seconds. Really? We're like, no shit. He was just waiting <laughs> for us. So, um, and it had been about 20 minutes since we'd run into those guys. Mm-hmm. We, like, let it calm down. Um we called again and that thing closed the distance by a huge margin. Like he had gone from wherever he was to a hundred yards. Like, Oh shit. Mm. I'm like, you know what? Let's piss him off. So I took a branch like the size of a baseball bat and I just broke everything within a five foot area. I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to break every stick I could find. I made a massive racket. And then, uh, Austin threw out like a, a chuckle and then like thumped his tube a couple mm-hmm. times. Yeah. And then we heard a stick break, like, 40 yards away like that thing is right here he is pissed and he is coming in and and you still don't have visual on him yet you're just hearing him no 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 just just heard him um and so i'm I'm like looking around i'm like he's probably gonna come over here because we sort of saw a game trail like we see him coming this way you know he's probably gonna try and loop around because there's a creek behind us like i'll sit right here and i had maybe like a 10 yard shooting lane and uh austin and riley are like four or five yards away from me and just like crouched behind a tree like kind of like one of these mm-hmm. like, like oh shit we can hear him coming and then riley looks at me and he goes <laughs> i'm like i don't i don't see shit and he could see him and then i finally saw him and he was frontal at 12 yards dang and then i i was already drawn halfway so i came to full draw mm-hmm. waited 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 till he was broadside and slightly downhill from me at like 25 feet he was like eight and a half nine yards away and just let it rip mm-hmm. i'm glad we had the shot on film because it looks like a great perfect like in the pocket double mm-hmm. lung downhill shot um 30 yards away he broke off about this much of the back of the arrow okay so the the preceding 27 inches is still yeah. in his chest cavity we gave him a full 50 minutes to go die mm-hmm. um, because they were like, oh, my God, what the fuck just happened? We did it. Holy yeah. shit. Because he's a big like 280 plus 290 uh, five by. Sure. And for a Rosie, it's a, like, that's a big bull. Yeah. Um, 
And I'm like, we're going to wait. Everybody relax. Let's not screw this up. I just shot him with a self bow and a cane arrow. Let's, let's let him die. Mm-hmm. Cause I, mm-hmm. let's not screw this one. Um, we went and looked, we found a huge pile of shit and some lung blood. And we're like, well, that's the, like, I'm going to die evacuating all of his stuff. The arrow, the arrow end was right there. There's a bunch of bubbly lung blood. We kept blood tracking and then it just disappeared after 70 yards, 60 yards. And we could smell him super strong. Like he's fucking right here. Like he's gotta be. And so we gritted and gritted and gritted and gritted and gritted until almost dark. Came back the next morning at dawn, did the same thing. Grid, 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 grid. And then the next day it was pouring rain. So we never recovered that bull. And it's hard to tell people that we couldn't find him unless you've actually hunted the Oregon coast. Yeah. And if you've never hunted a lot of big game animals that have piled up in weird spots, like I've seen 1300 pound bears in a spot that you could fit like a freezer. You know, it's very difficult for people to understand how small an animal can get if they like head, headbutt and pile up into something dark and mm-hmm. nasty. So I'm, I'm very sad that we didn't get to recover it just to complete the story for myself and for those guys. Um, but I, what an experience to like make a bow six weeks later, mm-hmm. call a bull elk in on public land. Mm-hmm in Oregon, like the thing you can't do, get a Roosevelt elk to respond and mm-hmm. get him pissed off and call him in and shoot him with all equipment I had made with hand tools. Like there, there a power tool hadn't touched that bow. That's rad, man. You're the third. And I think I messaged you this too, after you had posted, cause you posted the video of your shot. Yeah. And, and I uh, waited, I waited until we yeah. didn't recover a thing. And I'm like, right. okay, I'm going to like be super honest about this and post yeah. the video because everybody either needs to see this, learn from this, or I, I'm just so I'm sick of the, like, either nobody says a fucking word about stuff that doesn't get recovered or yeah. they make up these excuses or they have this like, oh man, what a great experience. I'm like, fuck the experience. Yeah. I wanted to have a damn bowl in the freezer yeah. and I wanted to complete that story and I chose to kill a thing. So I mm-hmm. should feel distraught about killing it. Like, yeah, the experience is awesome. That's separate. Yeah. And you're, I, what I had messaged you was you're the, I think the third or maybe even the fourth person that I personally know that something like this has happened to in that same area of the state. Yeah. Like just to speak further to how hard it is of a, of an environment mm-hmm. that is with how dense and how close and how, you know, oh, yeah. wet everything is all the time. That makes it really hard to find stuff with how wet it gets constantly. Like I've heard of, you know, people not recovering animals and stuff. And in other parts of the country, I'm like, okay, that must've been like a really difficult circumstance for you to not find it, you know, here somewhere. But like for me to personally know like four different people that's happened to in that same area of the yeah. state, I'm like, man, that has just got to be brutal environment to find stuff in. And some of the guys that I know that haven't recovered stuff in that area have made fantastic shots and they're good hunters and they can yeah. track. Yeah. I mean, I was out there with two guys that can hunt their asses off and one of them's a trapper and a houndsman. Like I know mm-hmm. he can track shit mm-hmm. and all of us were on our hands and knees looking for blood. Like we, we did due diligence. Uh, I don't think, I don't think anybody would have hunted harder for that carcass. Yeah. Um, unless they were getting paid, 
And even then, sure. like, I don't know what else you're going to do. Yeah. I mean, with how thick and dense everything is, it's like you can't, you can't even do like the bring something in and look from above. Like nope. you can't, you can't drone There's it. No you way. can't, you, you can't see anything. So, I mean, like you literally just have to do it step by step and cover as much ground as you can. Like there's no other did. way to do it. Our Onyx tracks look ridiculous. I bet. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I bet. Such a bummer though. But like you said, the way that you approached it in the handling of it afterwards, I thought was cool because it's a little bit, like you said, different than how a lot of people would talk about it in the mm-hmm. sense where it's like, oh, it was still just awesome. And you're like, dude, no, that sucked. And like, I don't yeah. want, that wasn't Close. an experience. Like that was just a really crappy way to end an awesome couple of exactly. like couple of days like, like i don't want to pretend awesome, that it's cool yeah no i had an awesome <laughs> trip with uh with riley and austin i fucking had a great time yeah that was a shitty way to end that hunt and they yeah. feel the exact same way yeah and they feel the same way about it that i do which is like some of this like talking in a way that seems to placate the audience into thinking mm. oh it's just about the experience and it matters just the the same i'm like yeah, you know what? Tell that to somebody who's hunting for sustenance mm. and ask him if, you know, hey, aren't you stoked you had such an awesome experience experiencing like the land and your feet were in the grass? They tell you to <laughs> shut the fuck up. Like, bro, I wanted to kill a deer today. Yeah. I'm hungry. Yeah. And I'm not saying that those experiences are not valid, nor sure. is the feeling wrong. But don't don't blow smoke up people's ass. Like it ain't all unicorns and rainbows. It's kind of like this romanticizing of it with it's like it's you the said, romanticizing. Said, yeah. Yeah. As well as uh, I've, and this is coming from somebody who's only been hunting the amount of time I've been hunting. I, I find it very weird that there's like this fetishizing of the, the game meat of the elk specifically of the big old giant bull. Like mm-hmm. how is everybody having the hunt of a lifetime? How is everybody yeah. shooting the bull of a lifetime? The buck of a life? How is this fucking possible? Yeah. Everything's the greatest thing ever. This is, this is, stop speaking in hyperboles. <laughs> yeah. Christ, people. That's a really good point. Because when you think about every single post I've seen, like, ever, it seems The animal like of a lifetime. Absolute like, perfect situation. Like, it's you know cool what, that it was cool for you to, like, and it's yeah. not that we need you to make it a ranking, but you can have a cool experience and it not be the best one you've ever had. Like it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't need to be that for the sake of a post every time. And, and the real unfortunate part is people that are not as fortunate as a lot of those um, people that have large followings or mm-hmm. whatever that can talk like that. Um, think that that's how it is all the time. Yeah. And the other unfortunate thing is when you speak in hyperboles on a regular basis, and then that becomes the culture of the entire group, mm. words mean nothing. Now, now when somebody actually does shoot a 420-inch bull on a 10-day elk hunt in the backcountry and it was super difficult to get it back and they, they ran into wolves and bears and shit and it actually is the adventure of a lifetime, it, it's just going to get brushed right off. Forgotten by the time you scroll for 10 more yeah. seconds. Because you know what? Apparently every hunt is the hunt of a lifetime. And yeah, I'm not calling anybody out specifically. I'm calling all of us out to be better. Mm-hmm everyone including myself yeah it's pretty funny because i had the the experience i had last year shooting because I, I rifle hunted as, as well shot my first mule deer last october and it was actually my first big game animal after hunting for 
five years. Like took me five years before I put anything on the That's ground. pretty normal, right? Yeah. And when I did it the first, like that first time, the actual hunt itself relative to every other hunt I've ever done was like pretty easy. And yeah. like I had this, cause we were like still walking on our way in like, to where we're going. Oh. Like we're still down in the Creek bottom. Like we're on our way to hit the part. Like we would hike it for like a mile, but we're still like, nobody's even sweating yet. And we're like, Oh damn. Like there's two right there. We just set up right in the Creek bottom, made like an uphill shot at 170 yards. And he fell right down. We drug him down. I mean, like we literally were hunting for like four hours that day. And it was awesome, uh-huh. but like I have this, I had this thought immediately. Like, I don't necessarily wish it was harder, but I'm. I also had to check myself and be like, dude, you hunted for five years before this happened. Like, yeah. you've I've put in an, a lot of time. Like, I'm okay that it, this one was just a quick afternoon hunt, and I ended up doing what I came yeah. out to do. Like, I didn't need to make it this whole big thing. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I hunted for five years. I'm okay with this one being two hours, you know, of a hunt. And you're going to get what you get, not what you want. Yeah, totally. Totally. You know, if you want to get what you want, go to a high fence place in Texas or wherever, mm-hmm. and you can get what you want. Yeah. That's fine. And mm-hmm. there's zero judgment. But when you're on public land or on something similar to that and a guided or not, you're going to get what you get. Yeah. And I was totally happy with it, dude. He was awesome. Like three by three, probably, I think we pegged him at like maybe four years old. Yeah. Um, but brought it, brought it home and I did the Euro myself. Cause I'm like, I want to learn how to do all this stuff myself. I like that. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, yeah. you know, I, I messed up probably a little bit on it, but it still looks awesome. And I was pumped. I got to do it myself. But now that like, I think after five years of not hitting one, I was starting to hit that point where I'm like, dude, this kind of blows. You know, like I've done this a long time and not had what I came out here to do. Like you know, some like, expensive hiking. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. And like you talk about people fetishizing the experience of it. I'm like, yeah, this is still cool. But I came out here to shoot something. I'd like to be able to do that. You know, and I've definitely I definitely had a bunch of times I messed up and pushed off shots and deer that I, I, I mean, I could have done it four or five different times, but I made dumb mistakes, yeah. you know. And so you get to that point where you're like, dude. This kind of blows. And then that happens. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm feel good about this again. I'm like, I'm ready to go back out and, and do this again. So it kind of was nice timing because it reinvigorated a bit of that for me to want to continue. Cause dude, I know people that have gone twice as long, like not without killing anything. Like it's yeah. such a, it's such a bummer and a weird way that, like you said, it gets, it gets talked about or shown from the collective of the hunting world that like everybody goes out and everybody gets something every trip. And it's like, and and it's always the, it's always the most vocal people with the most amount of um, access, the easiest Mm -hmm. groups of people in order to interact with or ask for advice or location pins, stuff that, you know, Joe Schmo from Missouri isn't going to get if he doesn't, live inside that circle in Western Colorado. Like it's just not going to happen. So fetishizing the entire experience is ridiculous. I mean, it feels a little bit like, I mean, I'm not into sports, but it's like, it feels a little bit like fantasy football. I'm like, Mm. you guys are fucking weird. I live for (laughs) September. September's oh man. September's over. Like, bro, relax, please. You're making it weird for everybody. Yeah. I get it, man. 
So I have this question that I usually like to ask a lot of all the guys that hunt that come on. Do you have a, it's, it's really a two-parter. Do you have a favorite hunt you've ever done? And what is the one that you would consider like your ultimate dream hunt scenario? So this last hunt definitely was like a favorite hunt. That was just wild. The, yeah. the, I mean, that's insane. Like yeah. I, I, we didn't recover him, but I just don't know many people that have shot bull elk with a self bow. Yeah. Um, that's so I'm really, dude. I'm personally proud of it. Yeah. Um, and really stoked that Austin and Riley were there helping me. Mm-hmm. It was a very cool like team. It was all the stuff that people talk about, like, oh, it's this, you know, group dynamic and like the whole thing. Like, it was the whole thing. You know, I was able to shoot him because I was in a position to shoot. Yeah. They didn't have their bows handy. Their bows were like five feet away. They're like, no, you do it, you do it, you do it. And I would have said the same thing had one of them been standing there with a bow. And if my bow had been leaned up against a tree, I'd be like, you do it, you do it, you do it. Like the whole thing was just great. And then dream hunt for me would be uh, shit. I mean, I sticking with North America, I would mm. really like to be able to self bow hunt a bighorn. Mm. That'd be really cool. So we'll see. Talk about wicked territory to live in. Oh too. yeah. I'd That's... love to, I'd love yeah. to do it. <laughs> now, if I ever awesome. draw that tag, I'm going to go live up there seriously uh so we'll we'll get we'll get wrapping up there was one other thing i wanted to ask uh so you've done all of these like what i would consider high adrenaline things Mm -hmm. right from the military work diving jumping hunting all this stuff do they all have the same sort of effect on you which is why you do things like this, or does one of those things stand out as like, this is kind of what I am supposed to be doing? No, not particularly. And a lot of it is, I like training for all the things and I like Mm. being good at things and being a student of stuff that I know I'm never going to be a master of. So like traditional archery or just archery altogether, hunting, guiding, backcountry skiing, ice climbing, base jumping they're all similar things to me where i need to keep doing them and they're all difficult and they all have high consequences and the rewards are incredible Hmm. um yeah i I don't see any one of them stick out to me i I do see the reality that i don't get the jitters or nervous about stuff ever anymore i I don't know if maybe i'm like adrenal fatigued or something but I just kind you're of so, do this you're a, lot. So ro- you're a You're an adventure robot at this point. <laughs> a bit. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, dude, uh, I appreciate you making time today. I had a blast chatting with you. Um, and you have, uh, you're with Protect now. I am. Um, which we've had, I guess it's been a little over a year, I had Nick on, uh, mm-hmm. kind of telling the story about it and stuff. But um, all the guys over Protect are awesome. And uh, do you have some some plugs, some things that people can go follow your page, protect all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Pump so, out, um, protect.com is where you're going to get it. We do direct to consumer. Um, if you need to go on Amazon, you can find it on Amazon. The products are fantastic. They spent two years formulating a liquid that has everything in solution. So you, mm-hmm. it's not powder. It's not messy. Um, it's as close to organic as we can get it. There's no sugar. It's mm-hmm. stevia leaf is what we use to sweeten 
any of the flavors. Uh, we do hydration. We have a rest supplement that has no melatonin, so it doesn't screw with your hormones. That one's the real Except deal, man. It's amazing. We use it on, <laughs> I use it guiding. I use it hunting. I use it all the time. Uh, our sunscreen is mineral-based and it is reef safe and certified organic. So we give a shit about what goes on and in our bodies. All of mm. us are athletic or athletes. You know, it's started by a bunch of guys that are athletic and athletes, mm-hmm. including a professional surfer, Mark Healy. So what we do matters to us, and that's going to pay off for the customers, so everybody out there. So if you want to support a brand that really gives a shit about that, um, gives a shit about American manufacturing, like we're doing everything here, and it's mostly veteran-owned and operated, mm-hmm. give it a try. You know, if you don't like it, tell us. Let us know why. We're trying to improve. The uh, the rest and the watermelon hydration are like, <laughs> like, yeah. like injected into my veins. <laughs> type <Good>. of stuff. <laughs> Love it, dude. And then your personal account. Also, you post a lot of cool jump stuff when you yep. jump pretty frequently, which is fun, too. So, uh, yeah, dude, thank you for making time, man. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we catch up soon, uh, maybe in it. a few months yeah. down in South Carolina again. Oh, yeah. And uh, awesome, man. Appreciate you making time. Thanks for having me on.